Welcome back to year number nine of Behind the Lens. That's right, folks. We are kicking off year nine of BTL Radio Show today. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the directors, the writers, the actors and actresses, the cinematographers, production designers, costume designers, editors, sound mixers, uh, sound editors, uh, composers, authors, you name it. We talk to them, especially all these wonderful artisans. We're, in, we're deep in the heart of award season right now. The Golden Globes are coming up on Tuesday. I know we're all waiting with bated breath to see what happens there after their absence uh, last year. Uh, so whether that will be a, a predictor for the Oscars, who knows? But uh, most of the guilds and critics associations, a lot of them have their awards announced already. There are still a few to go. But we're in the thick of it. And I'm having a blast speaking with some amazing cinematographers and editors and directors. All with awards potential. And in just a moment, you're going to hear my brand new interview that I just did on January 3rd with Scott Cooper, writer-director of The Pale Blue Eye. It's currently on Netflix. It was in theaters for a limited week. Uh, Now it is available on Netflix. It is a film I am in love with. It is riveting. It is mesmerizing. It is methodical, calculating, well-paced. The cinematography is to die for. Masataka Yanagi is the cinematographer, and he's worked with Scott on Hostels and Black Mass. Hostels, which also starred Christian Bale, as does The Pale Blue Eye. Moss's work is phenomenal, but The Pale Blue Eye is a film that everything is very much in conjunction. The cinematography, the production design, the costuming, because of the visual grammar and the visual design that Scott and Moss had developed. Um, it truly is magnificent. Uh, I am so in love with the film, and I'm so thrilled Scott and I got to talk again. It's been a while since we last chatted. So as you're going to hear, we had a blast uh, as we were talking. But joining us at the midpoint of the show, Nora Kay, writer, director, producer, and actor, will be joining us to talk about her new film, her first feature, uh, which is called The Cosmos Sisters. It's a comedy. It has a slightly dark edge to it, but it's fun. Two BFFs start a band in high school, go their separate ways. Ten years later, one of them wants to reunite. Um, The chemistry between Nora and her co-star... Uh, Whitney Uland, who is also co-writer, co-director, and co-producer with Nora. Uh, they've got a great chemistry happening, and we're going to talk with Nora all about that at the midpoint of the show. But it's a fun film, and that's on VOD right now. So if you're looking for something easy breezy that's fun to watch, that's it. Uh, the Pale Blue Eye is not easy breezy. It is intense. But what I love about it, it is Scott has based this on, he adapted Louis Bayard's 2006 novel, The Pale Blue Eye. And it basically is an origin story of Edgar Allan Poe. Edgar Allan Poe is mesmerizingly played by Harry Melling. And something that I found very striking for those of you that have seen The Raven uh, from a, a few years back, that starred um, John Cusack. I'm, don't mind me. I'm looking at Pam because our phone is ringing now. I'm trying to find out, do we have a guest that's calling in a half an hour early? Or what is, or what's happening here? Um, no, nothing. 
Pam? It was nothing? Oh, okay. We didn't have a guest calling in a half an hour early. Okay. Uh huh. But Pale Blue Eye, Harry Melling is, he is mesmerizing as Edgar Allan Poe was a West Point cadet. And in truth, in fact, Edgar Allan Poe did attend West Point. He was removed from West Point, but he did attend West Point and was a cadet at some point. Uh, but what is really interesting is when you watch this film, if you've seen The Raven and John Cusack's tormented performance as the adult Edgar Allan Poe later in life and leading up to his death, you see there's a great connection here. And you'll hear me uh, ask Scott about that in the interview. Um, it's truly fascinating because you really get the sense of what this fictional narrative of the pale blue eye, what Bayard did with the book, and now what Scott has done with the cinematic adaptation. You understand if this, if these events had been real, or if something similar might have played out in Poe's youth, you could understand how he got to be, embrace the darkness, so to speak of his adult life and his works. Um, the film is outstanding. I can't recommend it highly enough. But, as I said, cinematographer is Masa Takayanagi. Production design is Stefania Sella. Costume design, Cassio Wilicki and Maimoni. And editor is Dylan Titchener, who did Antlers with Scott, but he also just did Eternals last year. And Dylan is a superb editor, and he knows how to craft that fine line to keep you on tenterhooks. And he really does that here while showcasing the visual, the visual beauty um, and the story itself. So without any further ado, take a listen to my interview with writer-director Scott Cooper talking The Pale Blue Eye. Hey, Scott. Hello, Debbie. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. It has been way too long since we have gotten to chat. I think the last time we had a good sit-down was for Out of the Furnace. No. What? Not for Black Mass or Hostiles or Antlers? Uh-uh. And then we ran into each other after your lovely performance in Get Low. And we uh, chatted about that. That was my last performance. Yes. Well, never say never. No, 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 no. Jeff Bridges wanted me to, 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 to be in Crazy Heart. I got to tell you, mister, as much as I loved what you did with Out of the Furnace yeah. and the slow burn that you gave us and the... And you do this with all of your films. You have men who are loners. And it, it, it immediately casts a certain kind of ambiance on a film. Oh, uh, thank you. On a story. And you do this with all of your films. Hostiles, same thing. Black Mass. As much as I love what you did with Out of the Furnace, which I personally think was probably your best film to date. Wow. When you, would agree with you. When you look at every level of filmmaking, you blew me out of the water with Pale Blue Eye. Uh, thank you. Scott, this is riveting it is mesmerizing it is very methodical it is very calculating your visual your visuals are stunning and your visual tonal bandwidth is off the charts i am so in love with this film i can't tell you uh, thank you so much this this is the best way to uh to start of the new year that and uh, just before I got on I was checking emails and received the most gorgeous email from Walter Hill who's someone I've long oh. admired who had uh, written uh, much the same so I'm really pleased to hear you say that thank you oh and I'm tickled that Walter reached out to you I adore Walter oh my god he's a legend yeah your inbox sure means a lot I can tell you generous man but thank you for saying that this was this was a real passion project for me in fact um uh, I, I wrote it after I had written my first film, Crazy Heart, and and then 
Christian and I uh, discussed it right after uh, Out of the Furnace, but Christian was too young to play uh, Augustus Landon, yeah. the character he now portrays, and he was too old to play Poe, so uh, we went off and made a couple of other films, and and the timing seemed to be right, and, and I'm grateful that we did wait, because I think he's a remarkable Landor, and I think Harry Melling and the rest of the cast are everything and more that I could have hoped for. Casting has always been one of your great strong suits, Scott. And here, you have knocked it out of the park. Harry Melling is Poe. Is We're seeing a younger, freer, lighter Poe. The prequel Poe. But there is something that Harry brings to it that is chilling. Yes, I would say uh, he. the only time I've ever seen Harry in a film or TV show was, was in the Coen Brothers, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Mm-hmm. And upon seeing his limbless performer uh, uh, evoke uh, what he did with Shakespeare and all the great poetry that he read, it, it really... Uh, blew me away, and I said to Christian, I found our Edgar Allan Poe. And I sent Harry the uh, screenplay. He so graciously put himself on tape, um, and he blew us away. And I sent it to Christian, and Christian said, why look uh, any further? He embodied uh, a Poe that that, uh, that the audience isn't quite uh, accustomed to or ready for, because we think of Poe as the master of the macabre and the dark arts, someone who's who is uh, morose and melancholy and, and prone to tragedy and grief. Mm-hmm. And of course, we, we see that in this film, but the, the Poe that, that Harry put forth is one who is warm and witty and humorous and, and prone to poetic and romantic musings, but someone who is alone in the world, um, much like Christian's Augustus Landon, mm-hmm. who, 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 who operates on the margin and is looking for a connection, and he finds that. Christian, and they develop a father-son uh, relationship. Very much the so. The film is a couple of things. It's a, it's a whodunit, of course, but it's also a father-son relationship, but it's also a, a, an Edgar Allan Poe origin story. Oh, very much so. Take place in this film, motivate him to become the writer he became. And what I find interesting, because I'm a big fan of John Cusack's performance as Poe in The Raven, Yeah. and being so familiar with that film and seeing this, this makes your casting of Harry even more significant in my eyes because I can see with the pale blue eye, with this origin story, I can see how Poe would have gotten to what we what we saw with what John brought in The Raven. Oh, that's really interesting, and, and I'm happy to hear you say that because now that I reflect on John's performance, which he's one of my favorite actors, that... that um, I can easily see that that bridge. Yes. That's quite nice to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I kept thinking that the whole time I was watching the film. I've only seen it three times already, just so you know. Whoa. Well, you know, Deb, my, I, I <laughs> hope that my films get richer upon repeated viewings, but, and never more so than this one, because the breadcrumbs are laid for uh, oh. uh, for the reveal, I think. Quite. Oh, your, your reveal, and this is kudos to you and your editor, uh, Dylan, what an amazing job with the editing here. The entire film is very well paced. It's very deliberate. You keep us on tenterhooks, and you build and build and build and build. But we get to that third act, and we've got one reveal. Then we've got another, and then we've got this huge twist, and I almost fell out of my chair every time I watch it. Thank you. Um, yes, you know, we're making films in the most impatient of ages, and I like to stand against that yep. uh, with my deliberate style, but it's, but it's terribly difficult because whether studio heads or executives, producers, audiences, it's faster, 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 giving the audience no time to languish in silent moments, which is where you really understand who a character is. Um, and in particular, the last 20 minutes of this film is, is all called the ending. The ending is the most important thing in, in most any film because it's the last thing that you leave an audience with. And and it's where you hope that everything dovetails and comes together in, 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 in such a way that's satisfying, that's surprising, that's emotional, that's uh, unsuspecting. Mm-hmm. So that you uh, love those last 20 minutes are, are really... Uh, 
are thrilling to hear because if, 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 if those don't work, the film doesn't work. Right. Because we've had this great buildup and we've had these breadcrumbs. So you really want a payoff and you give a payoff and then some. Well, yes. And, and, and that, that took a day to shoot that particular theme. And it's really where everything comes together. The writing, directing, performance, Howard Shore's score to be able to uh, uh, really make it a, an emotional ending, hopefully one that doesn't deceive, but one that, or feel cheated, but also one that makes you question what came before. Mm -hmm. Really speaks to this notion that nobody is who they appear to be. And nobody knew that better than Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. Well, this whole film, nobody is who they appear to be. Yes. Every By character. Design. Yeah, right. Every character. And I love the film so much. I actually got the book. Oh wow! Yeah, Lewis Bayard is such a great. Oh my God, he is for creating this world. And I don't know how I missed this on release back in two thousand six, but I got to tell you, I mean, your adaptation is outstanding. But I have to say, something something I really love what you've done here with your build up is all and all is your cinematography is critical in this film, more so than any of your other films. What you and Masa have, have created here visually is, it is to die for, actually. You've got a visual tonal progression with your framing, with your shots, where you really start with wides as we're going through this investigation and as evidence and breadcrumbs are appearing. You come in a little closer, pick up more medium shots yeah. before finally in the third act we get a lot of close-ups. You're mirroring Landor's investigation, which is stunning. And then you bring in the factor, the lighting. You strip out all color, you give us the, the but for the blues, really. We're in a winter white, which is all shades of gray, You but for the cadet blue color, which is also carries through not just from the uniform, but into the wallpaper in the Marquis house, as well as Poe's eyes and Leah's eyes. It's the only blue we see. And then you bring in touches of red and the visual composition, the visual grammar is sublime. I am so in love with what you and Masa have done. Deb, I would love to speak to you every day. <laughs> Thank you, because this is really, you understood the film on every level that, that Masa and I discussed from, from palette, from um, making the film feel like a noose is tightening, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is a, a, an important motif, uh, that, that the camera is one instrument in a concerto working in tandem with editing and production design and sound to create an overall experience. Masa believes like I do when you move the camera too much it won't mean anything when you most need to move it like yep. formation point I mean, Hitchcock wouldn't move his camera or uh, uh, or cut unless there's a reason yep so uh, it was really important to me that that Masa Stefania Cella my production designer and uh, Kasia Willis and Mamone that we were all rowing in the same direction and that we advance the narrative as much as possible with images, even though this is a dialogue-driven film. And together, we all painstakingly recreate, recreate an era without falling into nostalgic overload. And Masa and I started, and Stefania, with Kaspar David Friedrich's um, German Expressionist uh, work, his paintings. Mm -hmm. We then discussed the, for, for the landscape, the exteriors, keeping a very controlled palette. Um, we then then discussed the interiors as though lit by the Dutch masters, Rembrandt in particular. And then we looked at the work of Kubrick and Barry Lyndon, uh, how he uh, lit interiors with, with candlelight. And then Akasha, of course, to your point, allowing those cadet blues to punch through. And then it would make uh, the reds uh, so much more important if you don't see them until... Um, the very um, uh, the pinnacle the very end of it yes where it all culminates <laughs> together but it was an incredibly difficult film to make I have to say difficult to access locations 
minus four, minus eight below zero at times for long stretches. Uh, but it was all in serving pose macabre work. Mm -hmm. And you get that sense through the entire film. And yes, the fact you stuck a raven in there was not lost on me. Oh, good, good, good. Well, look, that was kind of cheeky. You had to. Um, but yeah, you almost have to. And um, getting that raven to stand still is not easy. But uh, nonetheless, uh, you can't make a, a, a film about Poe with a with a little cheeky reference. And I also love some of the imagery, some of the, the blocking and the staging that you've done uh, where we're looking at a cadaver. And it's very similar to what has been portrayed in prior films like Mask of the Red Death. Ah, uh, yes. So there, any classic film fans are going to see this and be able to pick up on some of this imagery that is, and I, I'm, I don't know if it's deliberate or just happenstance because it works well but you really have touchstones to poe at every level well thank you well for better or worse um i am a deliberate filmmaker and and i guess one of my weaknesses is there are <laughs> there are many accidents yes so if if people don't particularly like something well then you know certainly you can blame me but if you're making an edgar Allan poe origin story and if you're saying that the events that take place in this narrative influence him to write and to become the writer that we all know and, and, and love, then one has to be very well steeped in um, not only his literature, but in some of the films that have been made mm -hmm. work to pay homage. And it was, I think, quite important for us to, to do that for people who, who, who do read Poe's work or have seen these particular films. I just love those touches. And whenever something like that would pop up, that just filled my heart with glee, Scott. So, so happy. Thank you so much. Now, you mentioned him once, and I have to talk to you about him. Howard Shore and the score. This score is so amazing. You've got a heaviness of death laced with mystery, but then the score ebbs and flows, like the running waters of that creek, right there and the river right near the academy or even like the flames that we see leaping up in precarious moments in the films it's a very unique score it's very satisfying and it's very rich well howard is, is one of our great yes uh, his work with cronenberg and jonathan demi and scorsese um, are among my favorite scores uh, he and I discussed a musical voice that pushes the suspense, the tension, the peril, but, but no one writes themes as well or beautifully as Howard, and he has themes for the, uh, the Landor-Poe relationship. The West Point Academy theme, the theme of Landor and his daughter, or Poe and his love, Leah, mm -hmm. all of those that course through with this kind of peril and tension and despair but also moments of, of, of beauty, because he said if you look at uh, Tchaikovsky's work and you listen to it, there are, there, are, there are moments that are quite ugly but also scored quite beautifully, and Howard really did that, I think, uh, with great skill and excellence in, in creating, I think, a, a, a really fine score, and I learned so much from him, and he's such a gentleman, and... I think uh, the score for this film is really quite superb. Well, and right down to the instrumentation, which really, it mirrors the period of 1830 with his instrumentation selections as well. That's right. Well, that was the part of our discussion. And so often in, in my scores, I like to score the landscape because we're all so influenced by our, our environment. Mm -hmm. And we talk about what... Uh, Instruments might be in use or popular at the time, whether it's whether it's the banjo and out of the furnace, whether it's uh, uh, the brass section and this, the cello, um, all those sort of things that are quite deliberate in uh, evoking a certain era sonically. And uh, Howard is just, I mean, he's a master, and I can't say enough uh, about him in, in this particular score. Yeah, I have to tell you, Scott, on every level, the Pale Blue Eye is truly, this is an artisan's film. Well, thank you. I, I, I certainly love cinematography. I love production design. 
costuming, sound editing, with Skip uh, Levesay, who's one of our great, Dylan Tishner, who's one of our great filmmakers, Howard's work. I mean, what I'm smart enough to understand is hire the best people to help you bring your vision to life. And these are among the best artisans working in cinema today, and I'm grateful that they all have joined forces with me because there really is, for me, no greater pleasure than um, making films and working with people that, that continue to educate me as a, as a filmmaker. And six movies in, I, I, I um, can't wait to get to number seven. I've been around since Crazy Heart, and I will never forget our press day for Crazy Heart, the Spirit Awards, when the film won, you you know, best first feature. Oh. I mean, such, and I was there for all of it. So to, to go on this oh, ride yeah. with you is just insane. And I have to say, you're, to see your growth as a filmmaker in this film is astounding. You have really come leaps and bounds as a filmmaker. And it's a joy to watch, Scott. And... Uh. And having said that, I've got one last question for you. What did you, in making The Pale Blue Eye, learn about yourself as a filmmaker that you can now take forward into future films? Well, that is um, a very good question because you try to learn on every film that you then will take forward. And of course, each film requires a certain visual palette or sonic score performances um, but I would say that in terms of everything culminating together uh, harmoniously uh, camera design costuming and editing I think um, those sort of things coming together in, in, in tandem and really understanding that the rewards are in the journey that you are making a film together um, uh, advancing a narrative as much as possible with images and sound and costume and and, and design um, because for me as cliched as it as it sounds directing is always a quest for the truth and, and I discover really what a film is about while I'm making it. And you bring your emotions and your skill that you have experienced throughout your life to your films. Um, and it's the synthesis of, of, of ideas that allow you uh, to tell uh, stories. And, and quite frankly, I'm more interested in films that push me into an uncomfortable space. I think the great danger is, is in doing safe work. I think with each film I want to be on unfamiliar ground because uh, artistic risk is, is one of the great pleasures of making art. Uh, I don't make films out of fear, uh, fear of what audiences or critics will say. I make films that, 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 that I'm obsessed with because you're, you don't choose your obsessions, your obsessions choose you and you try to bring all of that into your filmmaking and your experience. I mean, I'm just a much... Uh, more experienced filmmaker than I was with, with Crazy Heart. Crazy Heart and Out of the Furnace were all emotion mm -hmm. films from a very, very young filmmaker. And now I've, uh, I've uh, really come to understand filmmaking at a, on a, uh, at a different level. Uh, it doesn't make my films better, but it certainly makes uh, me more confident, makes the choices that I make feel more confident uh, and, and secure. Um, and it's really about having a team of collaborators because I love uh, camera design, costume score, editing, sound design, all of those things. Having people that support your vision and see the film that you're making, and that is critical. And that also goes for the cast. I love actors. I was an actor. Um, I want them to, to feel safe. I want them to be able to take big risks. Um, understanding that I'm, I'm going to protect them. And, and quite honestly, um, I think it's one of the great jobs uh, a person can have, which is being a, a film writer, director. And I'm 
eternally grateful for support and people like you. So thank you. Well, thank you, Scott, for making such wonderful films. I can't wait to see what you do next. It's you got you set the bar so high now. I don't know how you're going to top it. Uh, well, you know, it's it's when you make a first film like Crazy Heart, and it and it um, uh, and it and it and it changes your life like a film like that did for me. Ultimately, you can no longer toil in anonymity and become a better artisan, and you make all of your mistakes in public. <laughs> uh, uh, which is the double-edged sword of, of having a film that that, that uh, has a success with that first film, but I uh, will take that over the alternative any day, and I continue to make films that I would want to race out to see on a Friday night. That's really my litmus test. So thank you. Uh, it's a lot to chat with you. I'm a little upset that we haven't chatted in three films, but... I know. Here we are. But here we are. We will not let it go three films again. I hope not. Scott. Thank you. Such great questions, and, and your passion really has started my year off the right way. I'm glad. You st definitely ended mine and started it off perfectly. Well, thank you. I hope to see you again. I hope that you have a healthy 2023. We all need that. You too, and we will talk sooner rather than later, Scott. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that was the wonderful... Scott Cooper, writer-director of The Pale Blue Eye on Netflix right now. And as I said at the top, I can't recommend it highly enough. It is a stunning film. This is an artisan's showcase. Um, in all sincerity, each, each artisan delivers. They're at the top of their game, be it Masa, um, be it our, our Stasia, the production designer, Dylan, the editor. I mean, everything is so fine-tuned in this film. It is a showcase. And to see all of those elements come together to tell this story, fantastic. And I got to tell you, if you haven't read the book, get the book. The book is fabulous. I had not read the book before seeing the film. How I missed this book of Bayard's in 2006, I still don't know, but I did. I've now made up for it because I loved the film so much. I ordered the book, so while I spent the holidays homesick, um, and I'm still, as you can tell, I'm still not 100% with my voice and coughing, um, but I read the book, and Scott's adaptation is wonderful. The book is fabulous. So, see a film, read the book. And right now, we're going to switch gears, and I am so thrilled to welcome the fabulous, multi-talented Nora Kay. Hi, Nora. Oh Hi, Debbie. Thank you for that introduction. Multi-talented, wow. Well, come on. You're producing, you're writing, you're directing, and you're starring in The Cosmo Sisters, along with your partner in crime, Whitney Euland. You're right. We are fabulous. Thank See? You. <laughs> you know, when you break it all down that way, it's like, well, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. Yeah. <laughs> fabulous. Um, if you imagine it's half, it's a lot of half uh, on one's head. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to tell you, this, the Cosmos Sisters, I love the trailer. When I first saw the trailer back in November, I loved it. Then when I got the link and, was, and watched the film, the film is funny. It's got a dark comedic edge to it. We've got our two former BFFs who formed a band. And who doesn't dream of forming a band when they're in high school? Come on. But Come on. Nora and Whitney actually did. But time has not been kind. And 10 years later, they've gone their separate ways. But now Whitney wants to restart the band. And Nora is very resistant. And watching this unfold, it's really, you guys have given us a great character study of two individuals. And Thank you. I love your character of Nora. 
Whitney's character of Whitney didn't like her. She just annoyed me. She was too bossy. Oh, <laughs> she is, but she also is the one just like driving that car. Yeah. You gotta have someone in the driver's seat. <laughs> but then you also have to stop and think, do I really want to get into that car? And then you have to think, who's Nora to definitely just jump on into that sidecar situation? <laughs> and, and and you have to watch the movie, but, but there's a little bit more to Nora uh, pulling some strings. So. Oh, there. And we're not going to give away that spoiler. No. But it's no. a big spoiler. And this was one, because it, it actually levels the playing field of a tit-for-tat as to each one of the girls. Yeah, it really does. Um, which I thought was really creative and really well done, how you came around to balance it out. So then you really have to rethink what you think of each of these women. Yeah, I thank you. I I think that they both have, they have both have such good and evil inside of them. Evil's a really strong word, but they just both have such um, like love and joy and imagination as well as just chaos inside of them. And so they kind of are the ultimate team, just pushing each other further and further down the rabbit hole of nostalgia and wigs and <laughs> <laughs> you know, really getting getting in front of the getting get, make it a storm making the storm happen uh i you have so many things happening in this film nora where did you and whitney even start because you've done shorts before you've done some television such as janessica hysterical women um that you wrote whitney directed so where do you start with a, your first feature what was the impetus for this one? Who even wants to do it? It's too crazy. Indie film. No. Um, we, <laughs> after doing a pilot, we were really excited by the form of a feature. Like, we both definitely fell in love with movies. And so I think that it felt like, I don't know if it's the right natural step, but it was just, it was what we really wanted to do next. And so we had this dream of this feature uh, that we were going to shoot in April of 2020. Um, <laughs> I don't remember. If you don't remember, I don't remember kind of what the landscape of the world was like then. Um, it was a pandemic ultimately and kind of hard to make a feature film. So we had this script that was like, it, it was, um, it, it had, it was about like two friends. It was still like thematically about, friends and art making but it was it was like about two friends putting on um chicago the musical and it was like dancers and and which just was impossible to do during the pandemic so we put that on ice and all of the investors pulled out and the people that we had attached oh, were God. like it's a pandemic we can't anymore so we put that on on ice we put our dreams a little bit on ice and um and then Whitney and I were like, well, we still really want to make this movie, and we have some support from, like, Seed and Spark fundraising, mm -hmm. and how can we make this movie when it feels like you can't make movies right now in the middle of the pandemic? It was, like, pre-vaccine, uh, pre people were testing, but you couldn't get vaccinated, and we figured out that the real story that we wanted to tell was about two friends trying to, in the face of grief and uh, not really knowing what your future holds and who, who you, having a little bit lost sight of who you are, how do you come together and, and, and like, make something that you believe in. Um, so it was a little, you know, art imitating life, imitating art. But so I think it was, I mean, in the same way that these two characters uh, – really get lost in this band. It was definitely Whitney and I being like, we have to still do it. We really want to still do it. Like we have the excitement of making a feature inside of us. Like, let's go. You're like the $6 million women. We have the technology. <laughs> we have the drive. We have, to, we can do this. Um, we can do this. 
And, and do, they did, which is crazy. <laughs> now, when you when you got the idea for the Cosmos Sisters and you started writing this, how much of you and Whitney are in Nora and Kay? Uh, Nora and Whitney. Nora and Whitney. You're like, how much of Nora and Whitney are in Nora and Whitney? Yeah. That's a great question. And it seems like it's like, it, it's not autobiographical. However, you know. Well, if it was, it's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And our lives, I think, are pretty funny. But um, the lines between, there, it definitely is not uh, not autobiographical. But however, we definitely took kernels of our I, I mean, I think that real life is some of the funniest stuff that is untelevised. Like, people just think the craziest things. And so we definitely took uh, kernels of our own lives. We shot in my childhood home. Whitney and I both grew up, like, making, you know, uh, bands in our basements. Or for me, it was in the barn. And... Um, I mean, I was, like, going through a relationship issue, which we, like, utilized in... I was thinking about writing this character, and Whitney's father had passed away um, a few years before we wrote this movie, and so the, like, moments of grief uh, was very much, like, we talked a lot about how grief manifests in people and how we've, like, seen it in film before and how... Um, how, how it actually feels and, and what that would look like to kind of um, create a new illustration of grief. And it, I mean, it looks, you know, Nora's like on the floor eating pasta sobbing, which is not how you normally think of grief manifesting, but like it felt really authentic uh, as we talked about grief in one's life. So yeah, we definitely um, used some of our inspiration for our own lives and then took some liberties and added wigs. So, you know, how do you write a movie? Well, I have to say, eating the pasta off the floor after it's been the bowl has been knocked onto the floor, I can, that resonated so authentically. I have known people going through grief for whatever reason and yes, they have curled up on the floor with a big bowl of something in their hands. Inevitably, they drop it or they're drunk and it falls out of their hands on the floor. And then they start using their hands to pick it up and eat it. I mean, we are mess- we are messy, beautiful creatures. Yeah. You know, and I think that that should be shown and illustrated and also like in our own lives, you know, you have to embrace that the messiness will come and maybe the hopefully there'll be a Whitney to kind of sort of help clean it up who knows <laughs> you know at least you didn't have sauce on the pasta and that was and that was ultimately um, a production a, a production note because it's really hard to get continuity if you have sauce on yeah and I also noticed you didn't follow the three second rule either Sure didn't let that let all that pasta really sit there. That's really it. There. But you know this. You know you've got pasta happening here, and you have. All right, I got to ask you. A lot of pizzas getting eaten in this film. A lot of pizza. Um, and and it looked and a lot of pizza was truly eaten. It looked like cardboard. It, it, it wasn't bendy. It wasn't bendy, and you describe it as cardboard in the dialogue. Um, I know. I, I, I'm just looking at your faces, and I'm looking at you as you're chewing this, and I'm thinking, that pizza's not even bending. How cold <laughs> know, was that? Actually, honestly, but who knows? Once you're, like, you're in, in the world of filmmaking, and you're just eating... <laughs> so much pizza for every every scene in a movie that you wrote. So it's like, there's only one person to blame and it's me or Whitney because mm-hmm. movie too. Um, yeah, the, the pizza was a little cardboardy. However, um, the best, you know, it's a, you don't even need a plate. There's a lot of good um, pizza acting, I think, each time with cardboard pizza. <laughs> well, you know, you definitely didn't need plates. You didn't even need napkins because nothing was even falling off of the pizza. So, 
You were doing, and these are important production tips for people. Yes, exactly. The, the more cardboardy the pizza, um, the faster you can shoot, and that's something to live by. Yeah, I'm not going to argue with that one. That makes perfect sense, especially when you don't have a massive craft services budget and have somebody catering and cleaning it up. No, exactly. Yeah. You know, now, once you decided you were going to do this film. And the two of you were going to co-direct and star in it. Um, how did you go about breaking this down in terms of bringing in your cinematographer, blocking shots, uh, if you did? Because so much of it looked like you had a lot on sticks, a lot on hand, quite a bit on handheld. But a lot of handheld. The barn sequences, I especially like. Because to get overviews, it looked like it was on sticks and just you let the movement happen within the parameter of the lens. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for noticing. Um, so, yeah, once we decided that we were going to do the impossible and make a movie, um, we, we actually got the cinematographer who we worked when Whitney and I first met. We, we shot an independent pilot. Um, and we got the same cinematographer, uh, James uh, Daly, to shoot this movie. And he, he knew us, and he kind of knew our tenacity, and we also knew him as someone who's, like, scrappy but also an incredible cinematographer and was – a lot of people were freaked out by the idea of shooting in 10 days a feature film, um, but James was, like, energized by it, and we knew – that we needed a full team of people who were like rock and roll and excited about the idea of shooting a movie like so fast and just really like, yeah, diving into the world of the film. Um, because we shot at my childhood home, you know, I've, I've been living with the angles of those rooms for a long mm -hmm. time. So uh, James and Whitney and I talked a lot about how like the look of the of the world and the movement of the camera, and we realized that because it is such a, um, I mean, there's a lot of character, but there's a lot of tension between the people, specifically Whitney and Nora, and we wanted to be able to move quickly between them in shots, and also just because six is a lot easier to do um, in yes. a short amount of time. It was like about feasibility, but also about getting the energy of the movie within the cinematography so i think that it hand in hand was the right choice for like on sticks and you you know except for there are some like locked off shots which i think are also really fun like when they're doing the montage in the barn of trying to figure out how to write a song and so you know taking the liberties where you want but um staying very agile as as a as filmmakers well i have to say you know that barn is so perfect for this film because with, you know, the streaming tinsel, the Mylar tinsel hanging down, the wigs, the lighting that you have set up, and it looked like some of the lighting was coming from behind the one wall of the Mylar tinsel. Um, yeah. So yeah. you were getting some great reflection, some great backlight, and it cast some really nice shadows once the two of you start dancing around the room and because you've got it on sticks or you're locked off, we really get that free flowing sense of the energy happening um, within the characters of Nora and Whitney. And I really yeah. love that whole setup. Thank you. Yes. I'm so proud of that. Like I'm so proud of our, our lighting team and just, I remember one day we were like, oh, we, there was this cloud light in the bat barn that in my childhood, like, had all these different colors. And I was like, Colin, is there any way that it, <laughs> there could, this could have light? And he was like, oh, my gosh, of course. And so he, like, built the light for behind this cloud light. And then the, the like, mylar, um, the lights with the mylar is, like, a mix of, you know, classic, uh, um, Christmas lights meets, you know, some professional lighting. And it was just really figuring out um, a, a, an incredible collaboration with um, 
every part of production in, in figuring out how to make the movie feel and look like we want on, on the budget and the time that we can. Like the crew is just so rock and roll. I can't, I can't say enough good things about them. Well, one of the great things about that barn setup and the production design is the fact that we get the sense the entire film by looking at that, that Nora has still been trapped in her childhood almost. And when Whitney comes back onto the scene, she's still trapped in there as well. But seeing the youthful exuberance and the mylar and everything that you envision a high school band would have in their garage or their barn, then she gets re-energized with that teen spirit. Um, So it really did a nice job for tying the youth of high school into the late 20s. Um, so yeah, I, I think, it really, you. it really works well. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think there's just something, I mean, I know that this isn't everyone's barn. It actually got, it is my barn. So, you know, the acting, it was easy to access those feelings, <laughs> but I think that everyone has a space where you know, maybe it's their childhood home, maybe it's like the backyard or like the, um, a tree house or who, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. You said like um, a garage and there's something about the smell and the light and, or, or like maybe it's costumes or jackets. And there's something in it that just like, there's, it just like resonates something in your brain and your heart that just really brings you back yeah. to a time when that you knew like a really um, pure version of yourself, Uh, a much younger version, a little bit more naive maybe and imaginative, but it's so beautiful to be brought back and reminded that that part of you is still, still exists, which I think is what draws Whitney and Nora so much to the barn. Mm -hmm. And of course in your youth, it's more, much more acceptable to hide behind a wall of Mylar streamers. For real, for real, much easier. So, you know, now how did you and Whitney work this out? Because the two of you are on, you're on scene, um, what, 90% of the film together? Yeah. So how were you handling the directing chores, or was a lot of this falling on James? Well, James definitely did a, did a lot for us. Like, we totally... Uh, trusted him and it was very much a collaboration between the three of us uh some of my favorite mo- I mean I loved acting with Whitney in those moments but it was also so fun when it was like just um a scene with her and uh her mom and I got to jump behind and just be a director mm-hmm. you know and there and or when she got to direct just me and Jake in a scene and it was really fun to have so much trust and understanding with her of the world of the movie that it was like, okay, great. I can trust you now to like help me guide through this scene. And in those moments where she's on on screen and I'm not, it's like, I get to, you know, be looking and seeing how to articulate these moments. And then when we're in the scenes together, really, uh, asking James to step in and help facilitate that. But then also just um, being in the scenes and having, having written it and worked so much together, having an understanding and kind of a, a quicker language about how, um, how to get to the, to the, the heart of those scenes. Mm-hmm. Well, now something that you got, the, the two of you also did is you kept this very nimble in terms of your cast. Cast is small. Mm-hmm. You got Jake Swain playing Jake. He is a charmer. I got to tell you. He's Isn't a, he? Oh, my oh, gosh. I love that guy. <laughs> and you had such a great chemistry with him. I know. I, I, he's a very good friend. And I was like, Jake, I wrote you as my boyfriend. And I know that you don't want to date me, but I love you. And so <laughs> in this movie, he gets that. Nora's ultimately not very nice to Jake in this movie, but I was just like, oh, I just want you to have to look at me adoringly one time in the scene. <laughs> and he does. He does. He's so good. So he funny. he oh. even does at the lake. I know. 
I but mean, it's all falling apart. But watch the movie to know what we're talking about. <laughs> well, that's just it. We're just giving you know, we're just giving you clues here, people. Uh, and then you've got Madeline DeFries is Maddie, our pizza delivery oh. person. Um, the, the coolest person to ever deliver pizza, I think. No offense to anyone who's delivering pizza, but I really think that I would have been ordering even more cardboardy pizza if there was a Maddie in my town. And I have to compliment you on shooting the scenes in the car. Because you. you've got some side window scenes, but then you have um, between Whitney and Maddie in the car. And you're shooting in the car. Um, We're really in the car. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, and that's always difficult and very tricky to do. But you pulled it off and it looks great. Thank you. Yeah, we, our our sound guy was definitely like, Nico was kind of down behind in the back seats always. Oh my God. There was a lot of like side through the windows and like, okay, roll the window down and like, we'll get this shot. And it was, yeah, because we... We wanted scenes in the car, but we knew we we didn't have the budget at the time to create like a whole rig set up um, like some productions have the capabilities to. So I think that, yeah, our car work is definitely um, a a sentiment of how scrappy the production was, which I love. Your car work is great, and the sound in the car is great. But what amazes me is you've got a small car. You didn't even try and find a bigger car. Like a big four door, so that <laughs> I know that <laughs> poor Nico could stretch his legs in the back. No, no, I yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, my parents had a Prius. Uh, we were able to borrow the Prius. So also, Northampton has a lot of Priuses in it. So I felt like it was a little Easter egg for anyone who's okay. Now, how I've got to ask you about the music. The music, and these are all original songs that you have in the film. They are. Can you imagine? They're wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, we're going to have a um, uh, soundtrack to the movie coming out in February on Spotify. So all of the songs that are in the Cosmo sisters' brains all the time can be in your brain soon. But, um, yeah, I. so my sister wrote tonight. She's Natalie Kitt, an incredible musician, um, and, and Whitney's husband john wrote a lot of the tracks and then we also um joey Contreras and brian russell carey are a, a composing duo who did sparkling which is throughout the movie and it was so, we're surrounded by musicians whitney and i in our lives um and it was so wonderful to be able to um articulate to them the the feeling we need it for the cosmos like the cosmos sisters band which was a lot of you know those like early 2000 CDs that mm-hmm. you would just play over and over and over in your car. And then your mom was like, I wish we lost this Hillary Duff CD. Um, but just these, these, these songs that become anthems in your life and are just so full of hope and excitement. And then uh, our, our musical team like wrote these actual songs and we got to perform them um, and work with them, which was just such such a gift. Well, I'm so excited to hear that the soundtrack will be on Spotify next month because yeah, I think it's a gr- it's a great soundtrack. I think so too. Thank you. <laughs> I really liked it. I liked every song in this film. Thank you. So I was very impressed with that. So now, because as usual, running late, running over, nothing new. Start start the ninth year running over again. I've got I've got to ask you, Nora. What did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker now that you have mastered tackled your first feature? What did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker, wearing all these hats that you can now take forward into a future production? I mean, I think the biggest thing that I learned is that I just, I'm addicted to it. Like, I love it so, so very deeply. I I love the pre-production, collaborating, writing with Whitney. I love being on set and just creating this, uh, 
you know, little bubble of creativity with the crew. And I love the post-production, like working with the editor and the mix and the colorist and like getting to really build this movie out was, I, I, I think that when we did shorts and we did pilots, I was like, oh, I'm really interested and I like different moments of this. But in this, getting to see the movie from inception to it's, it's, it's dreamable. People uh, was just such an exciting journey and just really solidified for me that I'm like, yep, this is what I want to do for better or for worse. Um, and then I think another thing that I learned is just like the team that you have is so important. Like you mm -hmm. need to find people that are incredible collaborators who leave the ego at the door and who um, just understand the dream and, it's, it's vulnerable to put out, you know, to, to crystallize what, what you want to see in a movie. But, like, if you can find a team and collaborators that understand it, like, it really can happen. And so I just hope to be able to, like, bring literal people that I've worked with on this to the next project, but also just that mentality of, like, of the shared understanding of the world and the vulnerability and just like the magic of filmmaking. Does that sound corny? A little. It does not good. sound corny. It sounded sincere. <laughs> it didn't sound corny. It sounds sincere. <laughs> but now, was did you find a learning curve going from shorts to a feature? Of course. It was crazy. Like everything was such a, learn, a learning moment. Like, we, I mean, we knew a lot of how to make a movie, but there were all, it was even like moments in distribution that were like, oh my gosh, okay, learning so much about how to navigate this or when we were doing the pre-production and figuring out all the COVID rules. But there's something about working with a friend and collaborator like Whitney and the team that we had and also just realizing in myself that it's like, okay, I have the like strength and flexibility to figure out how to answer these questions and also to, you know, I believe in this project enough to figure out these answers, but a total learning curve. Also a feature in 10 days is a little insanity, a little bit crazy. Insanity. Insanity. Well, all of your insanity paid off. This is a fun film. This is the kind of film on a Friday night, Saturday night, you're sitting at home. This is what you want to pop in. Watch something yeah. like this. It, it, Pull out your wigs, sing a little, you know? You know, just don't burn the wigs. Don't burn the wigs. <laughs> don't burn the wigs. Um, but, no, the, it's fun. This is fun, Nora. I can't wait Thank to see. So I, I'm sure you're going to team up with Whitney for the next one. So I can't wait to see what you ladies bring us next. Some, as, as per always, some, some comedy and some chaos, which I think the world can always do, use more of, you know? That's what your production company should be named, Comedy and Chaos. <laughs> comedy and Chaos, pretty good. I just came up with this moment, wow. <laughs> see, look at that. The mind just, it reels. So quick, so <laughs> sharp. Ah, oh, Nora... <laughs> This has been so much fun having you on the show today. I hope you'll come back. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This is a joy. Oh, and please, you've got to let me know what you're going to work on next once you get it lined up. I absolutely will, and I will send you a link when the soundtrack comes out so you can do it in your car. Woo-hoo! Because <laughs> yeah, I do. I'm a diehard, like, Elton John, old Elton John, classic Elton. Paul McCartney, Barry Manilow, Kim Carnes. Uh, and I love this soundtrack. <laughs> we love we love a banger, we love a bop. Like we just want to be able to sing in the car. Does anyone who doesn't want a bat? <laughs> that's just it. I think that's probably why I like all the artists that I like from years ago. Because they all had songs you could sing in the car. You gotta. Ah. Uh. Nora, thank you, thank you, thank you. And you have a wonderful week. And what a great start to the new year. Yes, happy new year. Thank you all. Have a wonderful day, Debbie. Bye. Thanks, Nora. Bye-bye. And that was Nora Kay, co-writer, co-director, co-producer, 
an actor in the Cosmos Girls. It's on VOD. Gravitas released it. Um, check it out. It's well worth it. Um, and I, I truly can't wait to see what Nora and Whitney do as a follow-up to their first feature. These are two talented, talented ladies. And again, The Pale Blue Eye on Netflix. Do yourself a favor. Scott Cooper has outdone himself with this one. All right. That is all the time we have for our first show of year nine. First show of 2023. The rest of July is jam-packed. We've got a lot of slam dance filmmakers coming up the next few weeks. Um, it's rack em and stack em, folks. But we're going to talk about a lot of, well, not, but quite a few of the films that are showing its slam dance that's happening uh, imminently, as a matter of fact. So, until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Mm-hmm.